Father in heaven, we just ask today that you would speak to us through the power of your word. As we continue the story of Gideon, Father, we just ask that we would learn what you would have us to learn, that we would be touched by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would learn things that would be practical for our lives, that would be transformational for our lives, and most of all, things that would draw us closer to you. Lord, we want to walk out of here transformed by you. We don't want to walk out the same people who walked in. So we give you permission to work a miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. When I was little, I thought that I was really fast. Maybe you thought this too when you were a young child because there's something that happens whenever you go to race your parents or you go to race an older relative or you go even to race an older friend and you're say four years old, five years old, what happens? Usually they give you a head start and most of the time they let you win. So as a little child, I assumed I am the fastest person I know. I haven't met anybody faster. Everybody that I, I, I'm pretty sure that I am the fastest person. So I remember talking with friends as it was getting close to joining first grade. I didn't go to kindergarten, but when I was about seven and a half, I went into first grade and people had told me how fast I was. You know, parents, they tell you their kids things that they probably shouldn't tell their kids. I thought I was really fast, so I was telling people, I can't wait to go and race everybody in my first grade class, because I'm pretty sure that I'm the fastest in my class. So I remember the first day of school, we got out, it was finally recess, we got out on the playground, and I said, okay guys, let's go race. So we got all the guys on one end of the parking lot, and we're going to race all the way to the other end of the parking lot. We all lined up, one person who didn't think they were the fastest began to count. All right, on your mark. Get set. Go. And I took off running as fast as I could and I thought that I was doing really well until I looked and there was one person ahead of me. There was another person ahead of me. I was not the fastest person in my class. I remember how devastating it was to realize that Joshua Doobie was much faster than Zach Page. This was tragic for me. Going home from my first day of school, the reason that I didn't have a best day at school wasn't because I was nervous about school, wasn't because the schoolwork was too hard, wasn't any of those things about missing parents, but instead it was because I was too slow. But I'd been told that I was fast. You know, it can be dangerous when we build people up, when we tell them things about them And it begins to lift this pride inside of them that they begin to think that there's something that maybe they aren't. But I remember when I got to high school, it was the opposite way. I actually did some home study my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, I went to play football. And I was really excited about playing football. I thought, you know, I loved playing football in elementary school. And my dad used to always play catch with me. I think I'm, I'm pretty good at football. So this is going to be fun. I'm going to join the flag football team at the, at the academy. When I joined and I began to play flag football, I remember a little ways into the season after the first game, we were having, uh, we had a night where they said, okay, we're going to rewatch that game and we're going to talk about the plays. And I remember them watching a play where I missed a catch. And then there was another play where they were watching me run with the football and everybody just laughing and saying, look at the way Zach runs. Look at... And as they criticized me and they criticized the way I run, they criticized the way I caught the ball, they criticized all these different things, I began to think, 
I can't play football. What am I doing on this team? Why am I playing football? I'm, I'm terrible at football. And little by little, that criticism began to wear me down. What we say about somebody has a lot of power. We're living in a culture that is constantly criticizing or constantly building people up. Have you noticed that? I mean, right now we're in the midst of the elections, which that's what it's all about. You have people who are constantly criticizing and finding things about somebody's life and trying to bring out things or that are constantly trying to build up and say how this person is just this amazing person and how they would be the best at being the president. And you have people trying to build themselves up. We live in a a society that bases itself off of criticism and off of accolade, building people up, praising them and tearing them down. It's not much different in the story of Gideon. I'm going to invite you to go back to Judges chapter 7 and 8, where we've been looking at the story of Gideon. We've looked at it for three weeks now. This is our fourth week. If you've missed any of the preceding messages where we've been talking about how God took this man of God uh, who was not realizing that he was going to be a valiant warrior, but God took him and did an incredible victory through him. If you've missed any of those messages, you can get them on our website. But go with me to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8 comes immediately following the victory that we talked about last week. Last week we talked about how God said, there are too many people with you because if all of these people win the victory, then they're going to take glory for themselves. And so the army gets down to eventually how many people? Just 300 soldiers. And they go out with their pots that have torches inside of them. They break them around the army. The army begins to fight itself and God wins a mighty victory. But that isn't enough because as this victory is being won, Gideon sends out warriors, messengers in the end of uh, chapter 7 to the tribe of Ephraim and says, hey, go down to the fords of the Jordan and cut off the enemy. Prepare for the enemy. Get ready to stop the enemy there. And so Ephraim sends down warriors there and they hadn't been a part of the 300. But these Ephraimites go down and they begin to route the Midianites when they go to try to cross the Jordan River. So they, they win a mighty victory because they actually, there's two warriors, two princes among the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. It's interesting names sometimes they had back then. But Oreb and Zeb, these two princes, they were able to capture them and to take them out. So Ephraim at this point has done a mighty victory, but look at what Ephraim does. They've, they've suddenly jumped in, they've joined the battle at this point in time, and here comes Gideon with his small band of 300, and Ephraim comes to Gideon, and they're not happy. In verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, this is to Gideon, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. Here's Gideon. God has just used Gideon to win this incredible victory. God has called him. God has chosen him. He's he's led him to take 300 men and rout an army that's over 135,000 people. These people who are oppressing the Ephraimites along with everybody else. These people who are causing all kinds of problems. God has worked this mighty victory. And what does Ephraim do? They come and they begin to criticize. You know, I found again and again, and I've witnessed throughout Bible history even, 
that when God is doing something mighty, when God is on the move, when good things are happening, the enemy tries to get in. And he tries to get in by criticizing the people that God is using in those victories. Have you seen that happen before? Sometimes God is working a victory in church. God is using somebody to do a great thing in a ministry. And as they're beginning to work in this ministry, people begin to talk about them. People begin to say things. Maybe this has happened to you before. Maybe you've had somebody criticize you when you said, I was just trying to work for God. I was just trying to help. And and here people began saying this stuff about me. So why should I do this anymore? It's hard to take criticism, isn't it? I'm not sure exactly what it is that prompts us to criticize each other, but I know that it can be a tempting thing. When we see somebody that God is using, when we see good things happening, maybe it's our own feeling that of jealousy. Maybe it's our own feeling of insufficiency, but somehow we look at them and we begin to say, well, if they're so good, then why are they doing this? And why do they have this problem in their life? And there's that temptation to tear down. That temptation to attack a person that God is using. So this happens with the men of Ephraim. They, they reprimand Gideon sharply. This, this man who didn't want to be chosen, this, this humble person we talked about last week, how God chooses the humble and uses them powerfully. This, this man who God chose is being criticized. And how does he respond How should we respond when we're criticized, when we're just trying to do what Jesus has called us to? We're just trying to follow Jesus. Verse 2 continues, So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Abiezer was his father. So he says, is not the gleaning of the grapes, that's those who follow behind the harvest and just pick out the the leftovers, didn't you end up with a better thing than the harvest that I've done? I've worked on this entire battle, and yet you were the ones who took out Oreb and Zeb. He's saying to them, look, you guys have done a better thing than I did. You accomplished a greater victory than I did. Look at what you have done. It's this great thing that you have accomplished. He's responding in total humility. This is an inspiring thing to learn from Gideon, because at this point, Gideon could have said, Ephraim, what are you thinking? Why are you accusing me of not calling you to battle? Didn't you hear? I blew the, the, the horn. I blew the shofar for war. Everybody's to know that that means that you are to come and you are to join the battle. Why didn't you join the battle? Gideon could have gotten after them instead of just letting them reprimand him. But instead, he responds in humility and says, Hey, you've won a better battle than I did. You did a greater thing than I did. Look, you conquered Oreb and Zeb. You you took out the princes of Midian. You've done a a greater thing than, than I did. Look at what God has done through you. It's incredible what humility can do in a situation where criticism is taking place. But that's not our natural reaction. That's not my natural reaction. When I assume that somebody's criticizing me, my first thing is to step up and defend myself. 
My first thing is to want to step up and, and to tell them all the reasons that they're wrong and why they shouldn't be talking about that and why this shouldn't be going on. How about you? It's so tempting to do that when really it's a, a, a humble response that can change the entire tone of a situation. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1 gives us a powerful principle in dealing with our relationships with each other. Because as a church family, the facts are that we're going to deal with all of these kind of things. As a church family, we're going to see God doing mighty things. And we've been seeing God do mighty things. But as we see God do mighty things, the enemy wants to get in and he wants to get us to criticize each other. He wants to get things coming into our church family that will divide us because he doesn't want us united because that's where the power lies. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's what Gideon did, wasn't it? He answered with a soft answer. He said, look, what you've done is really much better than what I've done. What is what I've done compared to, to how you have fought in this battle? Even though he had every right at that point from a logical perspective to, to attack them and say, why are you doing this? You, you should have come out to the battle in the first place. And, and don't you see what I've done? He could have answered in all those ways, but instead he simply said, look, what you've done is far better. Look at how God has blessed you. He answered humbly, and God used that to uh, quell what the Ephraimites were trying to do. Going back to Judges chapter 8, Verse 3 goes on, God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he had said that. It makes all the difference in the world how we respond to criticism. How we respond when people we assume are attacking us makes all the difference if we respond with humility. I love what it says in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9. It says, If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tenderhearted and pitiful, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is only one. Isn't that the truth of what Jesus was praying for in John 17? He said, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one, so that the world can believe that you sent me. It's what it's all about. We have a message to share to the world as a Seventh-day Adventist church. We have a message that Jesus has come to save us. We have an incredible message to share to the world, but until we humble ourselves, until we're kind and courteous, until we're a place where we are a church family that is united, the world isn't going to want what we have. What we need is to be truly Christ-like. I love how Gideon models this. I also love how Jesus models this. If you go to John chapter 4, Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. And in John chapter 4, the Pharisees have discovered something that they think will aid them in their cause against John the Baptist and against Jesus. They don't like either of these two, and they want to get in between them. They see that this relationship is causing problems. They see that God is doing mighty things, and they're jealous. A lot of times it's jealousy that leads us to criticize others. 
When I look at somebody and my first reaction is to question the things in their life, I begin to wonder, why is it that I'm wanting to criticize? Is it because I'm jealous of what God is doing in their life? And I realize a lot of times that that's what's going on in my own heart. And I have to take that to God and say, God, it's not right for me to be jealous of that person. Please, would you take that away? Would you change my heart? Well, here, that's what drives the Pharisees throughout their attacks of Jesus. They're jealous of what Jesus is doing. So in John chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, So the Pharisees hear that Jesus has been baptizing more people than John. They're looking at it as a competition. They're looking at it as a numbers game. Hey, look at Jesus is having all these baptisms. Jesus is having more disciples follow him. Look at all this that's going on. It clarifies in the next verse that Jesus actually wasn't baptizing anyone, but his disciples were baptizing people. But look at verse 3. Look at how Jesus responds. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So Jesus hears that the Pharisees know that he is baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. And they're seeing this competition going on and they're thinking, ah, we can create division here. We can point out that here Jesus is baptizing more disciples. And Jesus simply walks away and goes to Galilee. He goes away from the place where all the people are. He goes away from the place where he's having all this success. And he goes to the humble area of Galilee where there were less people. It was the the region that was less populated where the poorer people were. He walks away from the area where he's having success. As a pastor, that wouldn't be natural for me. If I'm in a place where a lot of people are coming, a lot of people are wanting to be baptized, even if I'm baptizing more than somebody in the neighboring church, I'm thinking, well, God must be blessing. This must be exactly what God wants because people are coming and people are being baptized. Clearly, this has to be the best thing. And so I'm going to stay here and do it too bad for that person. But you see the humility in Jesus. Jesus is worried about John the Baptist. And Jesus is most concerned with the Father's will. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to let this division come between us. I'm going to walk away from this place that looks like more ministry is happening. And I'm going to walk away humbly. And I'm going to allow John the Baptist to continue doing what he's doing. I'm not going to allow the Pharisees to create this division between us. Jesus is such an incredible example. And I believe that It was Jesus who was inspiring Gideon to respond in such a humble way to Ephraim. It's not natural for us to respond like that. Going back to the story of Gideon, Gideon then, after leaving Ephraim, after the Ephraimites are calmed down, he goes on to pursue some more of the leaders of Midian. And the rest of chapter 8 is just going through his battle as he's running. It says his men are exhausted, but they cross the Jordan River anyway. And they're pursuing after the Midianites. They're not giving up. They end up going around another way and coming in and surprising the Midianites. And finally, they win the victory and all of the Midianites are subdued. So then we get down to verse 22. There are two different things that tend to happen when God moves, when good things happen, when when there are successes even in our business life, in our social life. Anytime there's success in life, there tends to be either criticism or another response. 
in verse 22, it says this, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, so the men of Israel recognize that they're no longer under oppression to the Midianites. The Midianites have finally been subdued. No longer are they going to have to thresh their weed in a wine press because now Midian is taken care of. They're so thankful for this. And so they go to Gideon and they say, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So here's an opposite response. You had the Ephraimites who come to Gideon and say, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? But now you have Israel coming to Gideon and saying, Gideon, you're amazing. Would you be our king? Gideon, look at what you have done. Look at how you won this battle. Look at all that you have done. Clearly, you are worthy of being our king. Would you reign over us? These are the responses that tend to take place when success happens in life. We tend to either try to tear that person down or to really build them up as if they're the most amazing person in the world. So here you have them trying to build Gideon up, trying to say, Gideon, you are amazing. You're wonderful, Gideon. You have taken just 300 men. And at this point, Gideon could be pretty proud, couldn't he? I mean, yeah, well, that's true. I, that was a pretty good battle plan, wasn't it? I took the, you know, the 300 guys and then he could have just told them how he did it and said, I surrounded them with my 300 men. And then I, I knew that if I broke the pots that they would be so surprised and they would think that those were just my torchbearers surrounding them and that I had a huge army that was totally surrounding them. And I just knew that then they would begin fighting each other. And Gideon could have taken the credit at this point. He could have gotten puffed up at this point because of the success that he was having. But look at the response of Gideon. Verse 23, But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Gideon recognized that it had nothing to do with him. It was all God from the very beginning. He was that person hiding in a wine press who God came to and said, You mighty man of valor, you are going to rescue this people. He was the one who tried to go with the bigger army and God whittled it down to the 300 so that only God could have the glory. And God knew that He could trust Gideon. That when they came and they asked Him to be their king, which was totally contrary to what God had commanded them to begin with, which was a direct blasphemy against God, which was like them shaking their fist against their real king. Because God was their king. God was their ruler. And here they come to the man that God is using and they ask Him to rule over them. But I find in my own life that that's a real temptation. When I see somebody that's doing something really well, I want to go to them and say, you're amazing. Look at what you're doing. That's really cool. How do you? Would you teach me more about that? Or when I see somebody that preaches really well and I, I want to build them up and just say, man, that, that guy really knows his Bible well. Wow, he's able to, to impact so many lives. Look at what an amazing speaker he is. Look at who that person is. And we build up a person and God can't continue doing what he's doing because it's only when God gets the glory that he can continue his work. Friends in our church, I long for us to be a church that not only doesn't criticize, but that also doesn't give glory where glory is not due. Glory is only due to Jesus Christ. 
everything good that is happening in our church. And tons of good things are happening in our church. Tons of great things are happening at our school. Our school now has 15 students in it. Praise God. So who do we go to? We say, well, yeah, we have an amazing school board chairman. Yeah, we have an amazing school board. Yeah, it's because... No, it's because God is at work. We have new teachers who are doing great things up there, but praise God because He brought them here. They recognize that and we recognize that. All of this has to do with God. Praise God for how He's bringing people to our church. Praise God for all the things that are happening in our church. Praise God that our It Is Written outreach where we've sent out the Bible study interests. We now have had 42 people respond that they're interested in Bible studies. And 28 of those already have at least their first Bible study in hand. Some of them are on their second or their third one. And we've had people that when we came to the door, Heidi went to a door and she was talking with this lady, Mary. And when Mary explained, or when she explained to Mary that she could do personal Bible studies with her, Mary began to cry. She was so excited that somebody would take the time to study the Bible with her. These are incredible things that God is doing. God is working powerfully in this church. And I've heard many of you saying, something is happening. God is on the move. God is doing great things here. But the temptation is to begin to point to this person or that point, that person. To say that the success is because, oh, it's because Pastor Zach. It's because Leah. Oh, it's because of Heidi. It's because of Ron. It's because of... No, it's because of Jesus. All the glory goes to Jesus. And anytime we give the glory anywhere else, then God has to begin to step back. But we need to continue to give glory where glory is due. And that is to Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. That's my prayer for our church, is that we are more and more a church where we don't criticize and tear down what God is doing. Where we don't attack the people that God is using. And where we are a church that doesn't build up those who God is using, where we only give glory to God because in God alone can we trust. When I was, uh, I think I was about 13 or 14, I began getting really into cycling. And being really into cycling at about that age, it was at the same time that, that the Tour de France was really grasping America's attention. Maybe you remember as Lance Armstrong suddenly captivated our attentions as he began to win the Tour de France by long margins. It was an amazing thing what Lance Armstrong was doing. And so I began to watch this as a kid and being really into cycling, I was so excited about it. And I watched as he won one, two, three, all the way, was it seven times that he won the Tour de France? And he was always just dominating this event. He was my hero, and I began to dream about, you know, becoming a great cyclist like Lance Armstrong, and he was somebody that I looked up to. But anytime we look up to a human being, we're bound to be let down. Because human beings are never perfect. We look up to a preacher, there's so many ministers who people have looked up to, and they've, they've followed him, and then when he has a fall, when something takes place in his life, they lose their grasp, their hold on Jesus. I still cycle, even though I found out later on, maybe you know that Lance Armstrong, he hit the news a few years back and turns out that he had all those victories stripped from him because he'd been doping, he'd been using drugs and, and different things. So for us to ever trust a human being, for us to ever build up a human being is dangerous. But for us to trust in Jesus we can always know 
that he will never let us down. The story of Gideon. For me, I realized that there are two sides to it. On the one side, I never want to criticize like the Ephraimites. And I never want to try to build somebody up like the Israelites do for, for Gideon. Because this can, this can be catastrophic in somebody's life, as we'll see in a minute. But there's another side to it too. And that is, if I'm the person that is being criticized, I can respond like Gideon responded. I can respond in humility and say, you know, a soft answer turns away wrath. I can respond by building the other person up. I can respond by not responding. I can respond in humility. And when a person is trying to build me up, like they were trying to build Gideon up, I can tell them, no, it's not me, but it's the Lord that you need to rule over you. Somehow, though, that seems to have gotten to Gideon's head a little bit. Because as we go on in the story in Judges chapter 8, Verse 24, Gideon does make a small request. So this whole accolade that he's receiving from the people, this praise that he's receiving from them that you won this battle, would you rule over us? He says, no, I'm not going to rule over you. It's God that's going to rule over you. But then he goes on to say this, verse 24, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So apparently the Ishmaelites all wore golden earrings. And so as part of the plunder from this massive victory, each of them had come back with a bunch of earrings. Verse 25, So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. This is a lot of gold. I looked it up, and it's about 42 pounds and 10 ounces of gold. And in today's prices of gold, you know how how much gold is worth these days. That's worth nearly $800,000. This is the small prize that he requested of his soldiers, of of the men who had been there in the battle. He said, well, just give me the earrings. Just give me a little bit of the gold. And he's given about $800,000 in today's terms. And look at what he does with it. Verse 27. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. It's a terrible ending to an amazing story, isn't it? Here you had a humble man. Here you had somebody who recognized that he wasn't a mighty man of valor. You had somebody who recognized that he didn't have what it took, and because of that, God was able to take him and to win a mighty victory. But at the end, when people are building him up, when they're telling him, you're great, you're wonderful, you should rule over us, he finally begins to take a little bit of credit for himself. And he, he takes the gold and then he makes it into an ephod. Now an ephod, what was that for? That was for the high priest to wear. The, the ephod that he makes here seems to be one to mimic what the high priest would have worn. And he had had some amazing encounters with God where God had revealed some amazing things to him, hadn't he? I mean, from the, the beginning, he came and he brought the sacrifices to the angel and the angel caused it to burn up on the rock. And then he'd torn down the altar and God had told him at that point that he was to offer a sacrifice, the bull. 
And then a little later on with the fleece, he put the fleece out and the fleece was wet and the fleece was dry. He had all of these experiences where God was revealing things to him. He had the dream in the Midianite camp where they had seen the barley loaf rolling down on the tent. God had revealed some amazing things to him. And so this had begun to go to his head. And when all the people began to say, you are amazing, he said, well, I'm not going to be king, but I'll be priest. You see your problem here? God hadn't called him to be priest. God had made it very clear that all the sacrifices were to take place in Shiloh. He'd allowed for Gideon to do that one sacrifice, but in general, this service was to take place with the high priest in Shiloh, not with Gideon. And because Gideon decided to do this, it says that Israel played the harlot with his ephod. They, they lost their hold on God. They, they left their true worship to God to follow after Gideon. It's a dangerous thing when we try to build people up. It's all too tempting. We want to point out what people are doing. We want to give them praise for what they're doing. But all the glory needs to go to God. And our faithfulness needs to continue to be following God's pattern of worship, not to go in another way. Because this causes so much pain to Gideon and to his family and to all of Israel. As you go on and you read, Verse 28 says, Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerobel, that's Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had seventy sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Apparently the money went to his head, having all of this gold, having this ephod, having people come to him to know what the will of God was. That's what the ephod had was a urim and thummim on either side that you would come and you would ask a question of God and one would light up or the other. So he thought that he was somebody special and he let it go to his head and he decided to have many wives. But not only that, verse 31, and his concubine was in Shechem, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrim of the Abiezrites. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bear it. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of of Jerobel, who's Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. And in chapter 9, we go on to read the sad story of Abimelech. There were 70 sons and there was Abimelech. Abimelech was the concubine's son. And that name Abimelech means my father is king. And we don't know if maybe his mother had named him that, trying to make Gideon out to be this great person, or how he got this name, my father is king. But eventually he goes back to Shechem, and he says, it's better for me to rule over you than to have the 70 sons of Gideon to rule over you. And he gets the people of Shechem on his side, and he goes back, and he, t- he goes and he kills 69 of Gideon's 70 sons. So there's only one of Gideon's sons left. But then, in the process, he and Shechem begin to not get along. He attacks Shechem, and eventually Shechem puts him to death. Or uh, in a later battle, he gets 
A, a woman throws a millstone out of the top of a tower and Abimelech dies, leaving one son of Gideon left. A terrible ending to a story that could have ended so beautifully. Gideon had these great responses of humility. Gideon had done such great things. But at the end, Gideon tried to take just a little bit of the glory to himself. He tried to just take, well, just the earrings. I'll just take a little, I'll skim off the top of what God has done for myself. And look at the terrible result in the life of Gideon. Makes me realize why the Bible again and again points out humility as being the only way. It says, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Jesus said in Matthew 23 that whoever wants to be the greatest among you, let him be your servant. Let him humble himself. It's the humble who God can exalt. It's the humble that God can use. So for our church, I long for us to be a church where we don't criticize each other. A church where when criticism happens, we respond humbly to that criticism. A a church where we don't build each other up and if somebody tries to build us up, we respond humbly and give the glory to God. I long for us to be a church that God can pour out His Holy Spirit, that He can reveal His glory because He knows that all the glory will go to Jesus Christ. And He can know that it won't wreck our lives like it wrecked Gideon's life and his family's life in the end. Again, in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, it says, If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous, and tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is just one. I long for that to take place in Templeton Hills. I long for people to say, those people there, they're so like Jesus. They're so kind. They're so humble. Even when somebody criticizes them, they respond humbly rather than responding in the way that maybe they feel the right to respond. They, you should see it when they do something great. They give all the glory to God. They don't try to skim off the top at all. All of the glory goes to Jesus at that church. When people see us united like that, when they see us humble like that, when they see God getting all the glory here, I guarantee that more people will want to be a part of our church family. So for me, it takes some honest heart searching as to why when I see a person that I, why are there people that I, I want to pick apart in my life? Why are there people that I want to, to criticize? I need to evaluate that in my own heart. And why are there people that I want to build up and, and acknowledge all the things that they've done and, and try to give them glory for the stuff that they've done? It takes some heart searching to say, why is that going on in my own life? And it takes some pleading with Jesus to change my heart, to be able to respond humbly when I'm criticized, to be able to respond humbly when somebody tries to give glory to me because all the glory belongs to Jesus. So I want to challenge you over the coming week, but not just over the coming week, for the rest of our lives, let's live lives that are only for the glory of Jesus. Because only then... Can Jesus truly work through us? Only then can we truly represent Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Gideon. It's been a privilege to dive into the story a little deeper for the past three weeks, four weeks. 
Father, thank you for showing us what you can do through humble vessels who trust wholly in you. Lord, help us to continue being those humble vessels to never respond to criticism in the wrong way. And help us not to criticize each other. Help us always to follow your counsel when it comes to advising others about what we believe they're doing wrong in their lives. And Father, may we never respond with pride when people try to build us up. And may we never try to build others up, but may all the glory in our church go to Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy of our praise. Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit on us in a powerful way as we trust in you and we give all the glory to Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.